Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to the Sci Fi Sci, a podcast about black science fiction, fantasy, and staying on the same page in this magical marriage. I'm one of your co hosts, Amber Wallen, and you is. Benjamin Wallen. Nice. Greetings, Benjamin. Before we get started today on episode 15, it's been 15 weeks and I haven't killed Ben. Phenomenal. I just want to thank everyone listening out there and also admonish you, urge you to leave a rating on Apple Podcasts. It would mean a lot to us if you've been listening, hanging in there with us all these weeks. Stop by Apple Podcasts and leave a rating because that's how we're going to spread the good news about black science fiction and fantasy. And more importantly, ourselves. Spread the good news about... We are more important than the genre of black science fiction and fantasy? Mm. Probably. Yeah. No, we're not. Not at all. But anyway, leave a rating. Show us some love that way. So let's get into today's episode. It's episode 15. We read The Deep by Rivers Solomon. And I just want to say this is my favorite read of 2020. Like before, after, during the podcast, this is going to be the book to beat. I just want to name that off the top. It's also a collaborative piece. So it's written by River Solomon, but it's based off a song by Clipping Period, which is made up of Dovey Diggs, William Hudson, and Jonathan Snipes. So it's this collaboration uh, based off of a song they did called The Deep. I love it. I mean, W. Diggs could read me to sleep every single night. And he does read the audiobook. Yes, of, he does. And it was so nice. It. I mean, you know, we know his voice so intimately from Hamilton, but it was really great him reading and doing the different voices. I completely cast everybody in the book already based on how well he read it and how well it was written. See, I don't think this would translate very nicely to a film or a Netflix show. I think it sits very nicely as a song and a novella. So why do we have to gluttonize and make everything into a TV show or a film? In my mind, it seems that books aren't published nowadays unless they receive some sort of ability to be transferred to a film, which annoys me because it restricts your ability to play with narrative structures that can only work in short story or novella form. So I hope it stays as a novella so people just read the novella and get that full experience, personally for me. I 1,000% disagree. I have to, as an actor, I'm always like, oh, this is who I could play, or this is who somebody that looks like me could play. So I'm all about this novella jumping from the page to the screen and then hiring just like full crews of black hairstylists and makeup artists and producers and cinematographers and just expanding this world of Afro-mermaidism is what I'm calling it. Afro-mermaid is like... One, my next tattoo. Two, my neck. Like, if I could get plastic surgery to do anything, it would to be a mermaid. I need to be a mermaid after reading this book. Sure. So for our listeners, this is a mermaid story. Yes. We didn't 
say that. So yes, it is a mermaid story and sort of just some backgrounds on mermaids. Uh, my first experience with mermaids were the little <gasps> mermaid. Oh, damn it. That I was thought my... you, I, I was really hoping you saw a mermaid as a child or something. Or, like, what you thought you saw was a mermaid or something. Nope, they don't exist. I don't believe Even that. Even though Animal, Animal Planet produced a fake documentary in 2013 about what mermaids would look like if they evolved. If there were two streams of human descendants, one evolved on land, one evolved on the sea. And Animal Planet, which is known for making straight documentaries, got, like, all these phone calls because people actually believe that this was true. So they made some... It was a mockumentary, basically. But I believe that mermaids are real. I don't care what you say. Well, going back to The Little Mermaid, I remember I was at my friend David's house. Maybe I was nine or eight. And this was the first time I saw uh, someone with a bikini, I think. The Little Mermaid? Or, or yeah, or recognize that yeah, it was yeah. a bikini. that makes sense. Or, like, sexualize. This is, like, the first sexualization. Uh, that, And I remember saying I wanted to watch it, and my friend David was like, that's for girls. I was like, I still want to watch it. You want to see them titties and them clams. But it was also pretty cool and violent uh, at the end <laughs> where Prince Eric rams... Almost, oh. I forgot about that. He rams his stick his penetration stick into ursula into her oh. stomach it's it's actually now that i'm saying it it's pretty sexual really yeah I mean, do you remember ursula... when he like turns the ship and it like penetrates inside her that's how he kills ursula when she grows into that monster i didn't giant. remember because i was such a fan of ursula's that i probably tried to black out her death because wow. she, she's one of the best Disney villains, like, full drag queen. She's iconic. So, I think I blocked her death out of my mind for that reason. But yes, I too, that was my very first experience with mermaids. What else you got? Or Peter Pan. Yes. Remember Peter Pan? Those mermaids were complete. What's the term? Bitches? Opinionated, maybe? No, they were terrible to Wendy. You remember they, like, grab her hair and, like, slam her to the ground? Yeah, they were mean. Because they were jealous like they like there's this whole thing about peter pan where like everybody just wanted peter it's like tinkerbell just wanted peter's attention so the mermaids just wanted peter's attention the lost boys like peter is just that bitch in that story so everybody else is either like crazy jealous or completely in love with him like he's okay also all the stories we're mentioning associates merfolk as hypersexualized oh, of course and related to some sort of sex and which makes me think of a story both of us read recently by uh, Jamie Go which is called The Freedom of the Shifting Seas mm-hmm. and it is about a certain kind of merfolk that's like half human half bobbit worm and bobbit worms are these kinds of uh, decapitating worms that can grow to like 10 feet long and there is this like really fucked up mermaid cunnilingus sing and i've never read mermaid cunnilingus before you thought it was fucked up yeah because she like bites off the man's penis in this story oh i thought you were talking so the mermaid in this short story slept with a bunch don't, of don't, don't don't give too much away don't give too much away because so how are you gonna say that and then not let me this mermaid that's true this mermaid got down and dirty with a lot of people so 
and generational. So I was yes. So I was confused that you. I I didn't know which of the fellatios you were referring to. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, Ben had me reading Mermaid Erotica. Oh no, I guess the cunnilingus is great. The fellatio was disturbing. Yes. 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 Sorry. You got your, your genitals mixed up. My genital pleasuring terms mixed up. Of mermaid erotica. I did not know how much I loved mermaid stories, though, Same. because I loved that short story by Jamie Goh, which is anthologized in Nisi Shaw's New Sons, which just won the World Fantasy Award for Best Collection, I believe. So definitely go check that out. I, I love that story, and I also loved uh, The Deep, which also has a love story as well. Tell the good folks at home what The Deep is about, yeah. without any spoilers. Yeah, so, well, we're definitely going to get into spoilers. For right now, don't spoil, and then we'll give a spoiler alert. Right. So, the whole premise of this story is that descendants of pregnant African slave women who are thrown overboard by slave owners are turned into... Wajinru, which is another term for mermaids. And so this experience is an extremely painful experience. So these merfolk or these Wajinru end up choosing one Wajinru, which they call a historian, to hold all the memories of this past traumatic experience. And the story centers on one historian, Yetu, who experiences quite literally secondary trauma because she holds all this memory of slave women being thrown overboard and all the experiences that entail. And when she tries to explain this to other Wajinru, she's gaslighted saying the memories can't be that bad because all the other Wajinru can just live about peacefully in their underwater cities without having to remember this terrible traumatic origin story. Yeah, she's kind of like if you're trying to visualize how Yetu feels on a daily basis, I think about John Coffey from the Green Mile and how when he takes pain away from other people, he can like physically feel that pain. That's sort of what Yetu goes through. Not only does she have these memories of all of this pain and trauma of her slave descendants, but she can physically feel that in her body. And that's almost bringing her to a breaking point. Yeah, she ends up uh, attempting suicide at one point in the story. However, every so often there's a day called Remembrance, and all the Wajin room come together and sort of have this electrical pulse connection, which deals nicely with the underwater theme because electric eels, electricity can transfer through biological like entities. They have one day called the Remembrance, and when she shares all the memories with them, she's free for a moment of all this trauma, and she ends up leaving, going to the surface, and leaving all the memories of the past with the Wajinru, and she forsakes her role as the historian. And when she goes up to the surface, she encounters a human called Uri, and they have a, a connection, and she learns that the surface has now experienced this like post apocalyptic happening. So, there was some sort of apocalypse in which most of the world is now underwater. And that's sort of the setup of the story. So, yeah, what were your first impressions, Amber? Oh, I, as you already know, this is one of my favorite books that we've read this year. But beyond that, I and I'm sure you experienced this as well, I went back and forth between like hating Yetu and really deeply sympathizing with her because 
as Ben mentioned, this remembrance was only supposed to happen once a year where all of the other Wajinru, this tribe of mermaids, are feeling this pain and the trauma of remembering the history. And that's supposed to last a day or two. And Getu leaves an entire tribe, her her entire community, in this painful trance for weeks. When they're in this trance, they are very vulnerable to other dangers in the sea. So past the Wajinru tribe having to go through the physical pain of reseeing these images and reliving these experiences, they're also now exposed to the entire ocean. So I remember feeling very disappointed in her for leaving them so vulnerable. And I was like, Getu, what's your game plan here? Because if you go back, your entire community and tribe are potentially dead and eaten by sharks because they're hypnotized, essentially. So I so remember you had complicated feelings. About I had very Yetu. complicated feelings about Yetu. I could understand because I know she was a younger mermaid and I really in and out of the book. I didn't share this with you, but in and out of the book, I was trying to simulate how she felt in my brain. So I would think to myself, OK, what would it feel like if I walked around and literally felt like welts of slave whippings on my back like I'm trying to think about how Yetu is navigating the world in that way and still trying to like go to work and eat and play and run with all of that physical trauma in my body or that PTSD and so there were times where I was like oh yeah I would be very paralyzed and depressed and feel very lonely in that state but would that loneliness force me away from my family and my community and that's why I went back and forth between like come on Yetu well I don't know what were your initial thoughts about that it got real mermaid mermaid heavy there for a second I'm sort of obsessed with this idea called terror management and essentially it is a theory or an idea that all humans do certain kinds of things to make themselves forget that they are one going one day going to die and have zero existence. And so we it's all it's all a process of making ourselves forget that that fact that we are going to die someday. And that ultimate terror is so overwhelming that it would be paralyzing. So we go through a process called terror management and we do things to make us forget. So I really thought And this book does a really great job of making you think about, do you want to remember or do you want to forget? And what is the benefits of both? So, and that could be anything. Do you want to remember that your own mortality and that you're going to die or you want to just push away that meditation and for me, play video games or read or focus in your work and try to push away, push away all the facts that you are going to die. Or maybe you've committed some uh, egregious harm towards another and do you want to face the harm that you've caused or you do want to put away forget 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 and sort of that that is the struggle that Yetu faces so that sort of left that was my you know my final impressions of the book that that powerful dichotomy of remembering and forgetting I struggle with that because all of Yetu's memories weren't all pain a lot of them were about how these descend these African descendants learn to survive underwater and discovering and when we talk about history, especially, you know, black American history, 
I know that our notion is to go right to pain and right to civil rights and right to 13th Amendment and all these things, but there's so much rich culture and history in that lineage as well, like full ass renaissances. So I think that, you know, and also Yetu is young, but I think that's super important to remember as well. But the book definitely showcased the role of a historian as like (laughs) exclusively remembering all of the pain and just like that first pregnant woman being thrown into the ocean and and feeling that feeling of like suffocating and things like that. So that's tough. This uh, story when I finished made me realize how influential Ursula K. Le Guin's work has been so the left hand of darkness has to do with an alien planet in which the process of sexualization of these aliens is referred to as kemmering and so you have both genitalia and when you kemmer you're like protrusion your penis like inverts and like forms a vagina mm-hmm. And it made me think of that because the merfolk or the uh, Wajinru... Yeah, you turned that page real hard. Yeah. The <laughs> yeah. Wajinru don't have like one genitalia. They have mm-hmm. all genitalia and they don't refer to, they don't have coupling. You would never say coupling when you're, you know, having sex because you can have up to five partners at once. Yeah. There's like mermaid orgies that's yes. like referred to. Get ready for the mermaid orgies, people. Which it sounds so crass saying that, but mm-hmm. the way it's described is so matter of fact. So I remember thinking, oh, Ursula K. Le Guin has a lot, a lot of influence on this story, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And then also she wrote a short story called The One, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. And so in this short story, which is absolutely, it's one of the best short stories I've ever read. The idea is that one person receives all like the punishment and pain of the community and then everyone else gets to live in like complete harmony. And it's really disturbing, which is sort of what Yetu Mm -hmm. experiences. And that builds on this other idea that I can't stop thinking about is throughout both like indigenous cultures and like mainstream religions, is this idea of the sin eater. And the sin eater is someone who would consume all the sins of the people through this ritualistic feasting of like a nasty meal or something. That's sort of this idea where you sacrifice the one to save the many, mm-hmm. which is what the story is, is basing in. And the conclusion of that is done really nicely in the deep. The ones uh, who walk away from Omalas is not a good conclusion at all. It's a very disturbing conclusion, but this conclusion of The Deep is way more positive. Let's get into some of the themes because we've already talked about remembering and forgetting. And one thing that struck me was about the language of the Wajinru and how language is so much based in place. So, for example, when Yetu goes to the surface, she, you know, makes friends with a human called Uri and they start, you know, discussing language. But it's funny how the descriptions of the humans are based in the language of the underwater. So you call them two legs or you refer to humans as split fins. And when you describe your cl- their clothes, the analogies you use is like underwater. So you say clothes like a, like a clam. Uh, who's encasing its mm-hmm. like shell or when you describe a boat you say a metal fish with a spinning tail with land dwellers inside it so i yeah, thought the that land was land dwellers yeah it was just so great like how and it reminded me how much my language is built 
into my sense of place. And even like someone from Chicago versus someone from New York, they're going to pull analogies differently. Like if you're going to, sure. right? And, and I told you that, like, you know, I've been binging Great British Bake Off real hard and just the way that they describe things and even their whole attitude when they fail at something is very different or their their camaraderie when another person wins something is very different than American culture. And I wonder if that has to do with place, right? Because so much of American culture is grounded in... Like hyper-individualism. Uh, hyper-individualism, but also competition. Yep. And like you have to wipe out the previous inhabitants in order to build something new, right? Like mm -hmm. we had to kill... For us to build American society, we had to kill all the previous like people here. The whole fabric of how we've... That, that's just ingrained in us right. as Americans. Yeah, and it's passed on. It's passed on to passed on, which is how memory and language is passed on. There's collective mm -hmm. memory, there's generational memory, and that's passed on. And that idea was like, oh, wow. The Rivers, River Solomon did a lot of work here of like Ooh, centering the oceanic, oceanic experience. Yeah. It also made me want to live underwater too and be like, if, if we... If we have to go, if we have to go live underwater, how is our language going to change, right? Yeah. How are we going to, you know, talk about plants it's, instead of saying, oh, we grew up like a tree or we're going to say, oh, we grew up like a seaweed, like floating or, you know, like yeah. all, all of a sudden you start changing our language. Even hanging out with you too much, I start changing my language and you're like, you're speaking <laughs> abonics now, Ben. Yeah, your black scent. I'm like, what's she talking? Yeah. yeah. Then I have to, oh, yep. I'm being racist. Right. Well, yeah, but because also I'm it's just that that is your environment now. And it's I mean, I've spent a, a summer in New York with my cousins and then been like, why am I saying like this is yo, this is mad this this is mad that I'm like, this is not how I speak. But when you're taken out of your environment, put in an environment with someone else who had, you know, very strong opinions, raised in a very strong like Southern culture and home. Obviously, some of those things are going to start to, like, rub off of you. Yeah, but it gets me into trouble because you call me bitch all the time <laughs> in, like, an endearing <laughs> way. You're like, or, or you'll be like, I'm that bitch. Or you say, like, bitch, bitch. And I'll be like, oh, this bitch. Yeah, and you'll be like, let me say that. this story about this bitch from work. And I'm like, skirt, what? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, wait, it just, oh, don't. Yeah, yeah I agreed. have to stop saying the word bitch. This story does a really great job of centering space and time with language, which I, I absolutely, absolutely love. Let's go into this idea of a historian, right? Because mm -hmm. what is the first image when you think of, when you think of a historian? Like, oh, you're a historian prior to reading this book. I, I truly think about like Dumbledore or somebody just like very old with a very long beard, the page master. Exactly. Like in the library. With piled under books. I don't think about some like 16 year old mermaid. Who's underwater, like holding on to memories. And that's what this book does so well, because I think, again, there's of us being a very written, we're like a written language culture. Like the way we pass on our next ideas is through like writing a journal or publishing a PhD where there are so many cultures who are oral 
cultures and they pass things on orally and that is how you provide tradition. We, uh, as a Western culture, we favor traditions or we elevate traditions that are uh, focused on erudite learning, which is, you know, book learning and solely book learning. So when River Solomon's, when they use that term historian, they are switching that term, right? They're reclaiming that term or reanalyzing that term in terms of the Wajinru, which is mm-hmm. fucking masterful yeah. and challenges your assumptions about what a historian is. I think that works with a lot of African folklore and tales. I I told you a long time ago that one day I just wanted to go home and before my grandma passed, just like record her telling stories about things. But even my maternal grandma, every time she tells a story about anything and she's not, I think she maybe graduated from middle school. She's not very like air quote educated in the ways that we think about, you know, like the erudite, everything you just said, but she just has such poignant stories about the, the environment that she grew up in that says something larger about the social context. It it is a social commentary. Remember when she joked about when she was pregnant with her sixth child, how she was like, I tried to jump off the porch to get rid of that baby or something. So, which is a, you know, she said in jest, of course, she loved, loves all her kids and everything like that. But she was saying something except larger. Except for the sixth child. Except for the sixth child. She was saying something larger about the lack of access to birth control. It, it was not a thing and how women navigated that. And you can't get that from a book. Like you just have to sit down and listen to those stories of people and I I love so so much especially in African culture how those stories are treasured and I also love that that mixture of those stories and anecdotes in someone younger like that was just so intentional and so powerful because again our only representation of a mermaid in the dominant culture has been the little redheaded mermaid that gave up her voice to get a bay and a crab with a horrible Jamaican accent. Those have been our only, (laughs) he didn't even speak any Patois. (laughs) That's our only mermaid. That's all we get. It's shameful. And all Area wanted was a man, whereas all Yetu, the historian wanted, is to be free from these painful experiences and images, which is just so, that story has some substance to it. You know what I'm saying? For sure. And well, it's not only she wants to be free. I think it's both. And so she wants to be free from that, but she wants to not be defined purely by the ancestors, which is something she uh, vocalizes yet too. And by the way, we're saying she, but all the gender pronouns of the Wajinru are a mixture of like we, it's a collective mm-hmm. we or y'all, especially if you listen to the the five minute uh, clipping period song mm-hmm. called The Deep. They constantly say y'all throughout the song because it's because the way the Wajinru, especially the historians understand self is through this collection of historical memories that are not just their own. So there's this powerful language play of we that shows, oh, you are not just your individualistic self. And yeah. yet you wants to be her individualistic self, which is why That's she... That's when she needed to be, like, thumped on the head by me. <laughs> right, yeah. 
And she ends up growing in that way. But part of a, a big part of the plot narrative is her learning about human culture and learning language through Uri. And Uri and her end up developing this romantic relationship. Mm-hmm. And there's this very... In my brain, Uri was played by Lupita. Obviously. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And Yetu was played by Tiana Taylor. Very muscular, sort of androgynous. Yeah. Very strong. So, listeners, if you're listening, imagine a world where Tiana Taylor has a fin, which I'm sure she probably does, and where Lupita Nyong'o is just a, a sexy land dweller, which she is. So, yes. <laughs> a sexy split fin. Split fin. Mm-hmm. Split fin. Two leg. You know what's funny? Can I say this really quickly? At first, I cast Whoopi Goldberg as Ori. And in my brain, then, when they started having a romantic relationship, I was like, oh, well, Whoopi's too old. Which is trash, right? Because you can definitely find love as an older person. But in my mind, I was like, oh, now this woman's far too old to be in love with a, mer- a young 16, like, teenage mermaid, so I have to rewrite this. Am I- it, this is all happening in my mind. That's uh, You might want to sit with that, reflect yeah. on how you desexualize people I over did. a certain age. Well, I, I wanted to... I, so I definitely desexualized Whoopi, which is trash, because I think that she's been desexualized so many times in mainstream media, one. Two... It became problematic in my mind because she was so old and then the teenager was a teen. So then I was like, oh, I don't I don't want to be dealing with these that age gap. So I was tossing and turning at night is what I'm telling you, Ben. <laughs> also, the their romance is not sexual. So it begins with them sort of just talking mm-hmm. about sex. And because Yetu doesn't really understand how sex works for land dwellers, and Ori doesn't really understand how sex works for the Wajinru. And so they're having this conversation, and there's this level of like sexual excitement, but they never act on it. And so you don't really get the details, like the pornographic details of mermaid sex. Yeah. There's which- some intimacy, though. Yeah, there was intimacy for intimacy. For, for sure. Uh, but that whole scene was like very tantalizing, I have to say, because, yeah, it's it's weird to think about when you are presented with like different kinds of sexualities. But this is what I think science fiction and fantasy does so well, is that it stretches our understanding of mm-hmm. gender and sexuality. And this book sort of enters into that whole like megatext of exploring the the possibilities. Tell of the people what they actually want to hear. Did you get horny or not reading the book? I don't remember. So that would my be a collective yes. my that mem- would be a yes. I might have <laughs> pushed that memory away to go to the surface, or I don't know. Can I say something else about that? So one, it was it was it got hot and steamy there. So if you're if you read this book and start getting a little horny at home, you're you're in good company. Two. I think that reason that you just talked about is why when I saw The Shape of Water, I couldn't really feel the... Mm. I should probably go watch it again, but I remember watching The Shape of Water with y'all and I was just like, I can't get into this because isn't this like bestiality? But no. And so I remember feeling similarly reading this, but but it was a, it was a little bit easier to go there with this book because she was half mermaid, half human. And these were like descendants and this this creature has evolved from, whereas in The Shape of Water, he was literally just like lizard man with a great ass. I don't know. Did you did you think about The Shape of Water a little bit as we read this? I did not, but that's a fantastic connection. 
How did you not? I was so concerned, like I said, with Ursula K. Le Guin's influence mm. that it, and also the, the, the thematic issue of a sin eater or the thematic issue of a sacrificial lamb, uh, which Yetu is entering into. Like she is the sacrificial lamb mm-hmm. and her being gaslighted by the other Wajinru about her pain not being as real. I was so concerned by the themes of that that the sex part didn't strike me as much. Part part of the reason is I had just recently read Jamie Goh's story, which mm-hmm. is super sexual. And yeah. this this steps into a little bit of the sex, but doesn't give you like full details. Like there's one moment where two other Wajindru have sex and they say, oh, and we had sex. That was it. Yeah, it gives you just enough. Yeah, they don't really go and go into the details. They talk a little bit about, like, their fin sort of, like, having sensation or whatever, but nothing too graphic. So I I didn't connect with The Shape of Water. I did love that movie, but I, I did not think of it. But that movie does fit in really nicely with the themes of what we're talking about here. The final theme I really want to uh, talk about until we go into like more details of the characters is that the deep uh, the deep song by Clipping period focuses a lot on climate change and how we treat our oceans. Mm-hmm. And sort of a big plot point of this is that when Yetu rises to the surface, she sees that most of this of the world has been turned into like a water world. And that has happened because a previous historian called Basha united the Wajinru together in a response to air gun blasts and that was searching for oil. And uh, oil is a big part of uh, the major plot turning point in this story. So, for example, there's this great uh, description of oil without oil ever being said where I think Abasha says, you know, below us, deep beneath the sand, there's a substance they crave, humans crave. It is their life force. They feast on it like blood. And that's referring to oil. And recently, during the Trump administration, they rolled back all these climate protections to keep our, you know, whales and plankton safe so that now oil companies can use these things called air guns, which you blast an incredible loud sound and those waves go underneath the water floor, bounce up, and it's a way to find oil. But whenever that happens, when it's going down below, it destroys everything in its path. Zoo, anything from like whales to zooplankton. And it also fucks up their sonar, like intensely so. Mm-hmm. Then, now, this is science, right? This isn't part of the story. However, uh, River Solomon, they take that actual happening, which when they wrote this in 2019 was happening frequently. And they take that and say, oh, the Wajinru is experiencing this, seeing their homes being destroyed by these air guns. And so they unite together and sort of create this like huge storm, this whirlwind of storm that sort of destroys all of the boats and essentially society. And that sort of gets into our characters. So we have the historians and the, each historian's story is not told in direct succession. So we start the story with Yetu, 
and her decision to go up to the surface, but then they flash back in time to the first historian or the first person who found a uh, a human. Waj is the human, so W A. J. Oh, W. Waj is the human because that's how they sort oh, of yeah. named themselves later. Waj the human called them Zoti. Yeah. I lay you, which yeah. means strange fish. Strange. So Waj is a human and mm-hmm. calls the first historian Zoti, and and so we get the start of the historians. And the historians are sort of backstage. They're not really. They don't have a lot of political power in the Wajinru until Abasha comes along. And says, actually, no, the historians should be the the people who lead all the Wijinru. And Basha fights the queen of the Wijinru and, like, rips out their throat in this very violent scene. And then Basha hands off the historian role to Yetu. But the way those stories, and this is sort of a side, the way those stories are told are not in direct succession. So you have to go back and read them. Like, you don't get Basha's story until, like, chapter 8. You're like, wait, how does this fit in? Because you've just been reading about Yetu, and you're like, oh, Yetu is coming after Basha, and Basha has united the Wajinru to sort of destroy all the 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 danger that is brought by humans to the oceans. So those are the historians you have, and then you have Ori the human, and Ori's story at the end is really fascinating because Ori ends up being brought by Yetu to the Wijinru cities. And Ori doesn't turn into a Wijinru, but can now breathe underwater through some sort of mystical, like mystical happenstance. And Ori is who reminds Yetu of what's important throughout mm-hmm. the book as well, because Ori has lost all of her family that's been destroyed. She's the last of her tribe. So she is very jealous and disappointed that Yetu is like, yeah, I just gave up all my powers and all my history because I just want to live my life. And Ori's like, I would take any amount of pain to know the history and lived experiences of my ancestors. And this whole book is about finding community and belonging within yourself, within not succumbing to like physical abuse of your community, but learning how to find that balance between self and community, which was so incredible. Belonging is where loneliness ends. Belonging is where loneliness ends. And I just thought that was so, wow. The ending of the story is that um, uh, Amabas, Amabas are, are essentially the term for mother or nurturer. And so uh, Yetu's Amaba is very critical of Yetu's uh, fact that she doesn't want to be a historian. But uh, Yetu goes back to her people um, and all the other Wajinru are just shocked about the amount of trauma that Yetu has had to hold for these years and years as a historian. And so they say, we'll hold the pain together. And there's this beautiful Mm -hmm. moment in which your trauma doesn't need to be held only within you. And there's this release when you share or express need to not hold the trauma only on your on your own. And so they collectively hold the trauma and that sort of ends ends the story that there's this reconciliation between Yetu and the historian and the rest of her people. 
let's get into some size. I mentioned one, like the time jumps <sighs> were, were a little confusing. Uh, so that, that made me, um, I had to go back and read like Bosch's story. Like where did Bosch's story fit in as a historian? Where did Zotis's story fit in as the historian? And then Yetu's story, which is the most of that. that. So that was confusing. You might have to read that, but it's a short enough book that you can reread the chapters. I have a sigh. Go for it. This sigh has nothing to do with the actual words, the actual story. One of the covers for The Deep, there's two covers for The Deep. One is this beautiful, we have it, it's like, sort of like an African print, just awesome, vibrant, vibrant splash of colors and with a, a black face sort of on the on the, on yes. the left yes yes the other cover has like whales and one mermaid in the center of the cover and the mermaid looks very whitewashed the mermaid has you know the floating long aerial hair i think they were trying to make locks there but if you look at it just very quickly it looks like a white mermaid and i remember my audiobook that i read alongside the regular book the audiobook had that cover. So I remember being very confused about, we talked cover politics with P. Jelly Clark about why would this like racially ambiguous, like clearly not black mermaid be on the cover of this book when this whole book is about black Afro mermaids. That was just weird. You remember seeing that, right? Oh yeah, like, for this sure. Is, what? Who is this? Yeah. And I think black writers, indigenous writers, um, Mexican writers, like uh, any, you know, Indian writers constantly face this all the time, especially in science fiction, because science fiction is so much determined by your cover or fantasy is so much determined by your cover. So if you're writing a fantasy novel or science fiction novel, you have to present a certain cover that clicks this. Oh, this is science fiction. This is fantasy. And so you often do this like powerful cover. Well, let's but, say you had to please everybody. Just do the the fin from the waist down. Yeah, I mean, the belly button down. No, no, I'm just I'm just saying that this happens all the time. Right, Spe- I, I know what you're saying, but it was for like, science fiction. I feel fantasy. like there was a way to tick the box for science fiction and fantasy without showing me a white mermaid. We've seen so many white right. mermaids. Yeah, I, I know. I, it cover politics. Uh, finally, I just felt like the the novella was too short. Right, so they yeah, mentioned Wajinru. Perfect, darling. They mentioned Wajinru cities, but they only really focus on one city. They talk about these mud houses, but don't give you a lot of detail. And then I was wondering, is there like only one historian, or is there one historian for each city? Like. That, that I felt like the world building, though I really appreciated the language part of it, I felt like the world building, the physicality of it was lacking in some substance. So I, I could have done with like maybe, I don't know, 30, 40 more pages. I thought it was perfect, the, the, the length of the book. I, I, like, I like being left wanting more. There's also this like really powerful moment of this transference of political power where there's this hierarchy of like kings and queens or whatever. But then that transfer of political power shifts to the historians. Like there's this guy, Mer- Merfolk, Wajinru, he pronouns but referred to as queen. So that that whole gender playing is really consistent throughout the entire uh, story. But there's a character, Amju, who's the queen of the Wijinru, but is killed by the historian Basha. And there's this political transference that's done in one chapter, and it yeah. left me very confused. The Basha storyline was rushed. The, yeah, the political structures of the Wijinru. Because they're there, and you know that they're there, 
but there's some lack of clarity in it. But other than that... So, Ben, I think it's time for you to warp up the show. In conclusion, I don't give a fuck about humans. (laughs) Humans are going to be okay. What we should care about is our oceans and how we are treating our oceans because there might be Wajinru in the bottom of those oceans. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thanks, Ben. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Sci-Fi Side. Next week for episode 16, we're taking it back to the future or the past. We're going to watch the movie See You Yesterday, the 2019 film on Netflix that plays around with time travel and black scientists and kids, and it's going to be awesome. So watch See You Yesterday on Netflix and join the discussion next week. Bye, y'all. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.